Okay, let's begin by reading the psalm. I have a tentative outline on the board, but let's read it. And let me just ask you at first, what might have been, I'm not asking a specific situation, but the kind of situation that would have drawn, that would have led to the composition of this psalm. Psalm 26, a psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes. And I have walked in your truth. For I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I shall wash my hands in innocence, and I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not take my soul away with sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed, in whose hands is a wicked scheme and in whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me, and be gracious to me. My foot stands on a level place in the congregations. I shall bless the Lord. Now, what situations in life may have called forth this uh, this psalm? Well, I think even of David and Goliath. Okay. Where he uh, is being mocked for his this, the determination to please God. Okay. And particularly, he's mocked by Goliath. He's even mocked before he gets to that battlefield mm-hmm. in 1 Samuel 17. Um, but maybe you single, uh, even in a bigger way, you said he's being mocked. Maybe that is a situation that calls forth this psalm. What else? What else might you say of Psalm 26? I don't see a lot of clues here for me. That, that, that idea of vindication. Yeah. I have a note written down that it, it would imply uh, proven and shown right in the sight of his enemies. Okay. And so there's... There's some, you know, it, it makes me think that it's not really, really super early in his life. You know, it's... Yeah. It has to do with deceitful men, pretenders, evildoers, mm-hmm. schemes, bribes. Okay. So. Okay. So it may be vindicate, maybe it's on a false charge by... Uh, wicked men, as Christie was mentioning in those contexts. So maybe it's a false charge by wicked men, but but there aren't any definite historical markers here. It is simply major situation where he would be mocked or he would be um, he would be opposed, and he needs to be vindicated. And therefore, we. We, we see the emphasis. 
I, I called two uh, categories by the same thing, or two sections by the same thing. A disassociation with evil, uh, and I hope I spelled disassociation right, but... Um, let's let's just take section by section. In verses 1 through 3, vindicate me, O Lord. And that word can simply be translated, judge me, O Lord. But because of the context, because it seems that he desires to be vindicated, therefore it is so translated, vindicate me, O Lord. And he affirms, I have walked... In my integrity. That is a key concept in the psalm. It's used not only in the first verse, but it's used also in verse 11. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. But in verse 1, vindicate me. I've walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Without wavering. Now, do any of your translations have a different wording there for I have trusted in the Lord without wavering? NIV says I have not faltered. I have not faltered. And David, you're the New King James. Footnote uh, that says I do not slide. The New King James says I shall not slip. Uh, slip uh, may be a way. We'll, we'll talk about that word uh, in just a moment. And it's used a few times in the Psalms. But I've trusted in the Lord and have not slipped. Um, but then in verse 2, Examine me, O Lord, try me, test my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. Now, Some would suggest that the language here is the language of self-righteousness. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Swindlers, unjust, and adulterers. Who could dare affirm, I've walked in integrity and I've trusted without wavering? Now, does that mean... Um, the fact that we're not perfect and we're not sinless, does that mean we're guilty of every charge we've ever been accused of? I mean, the, the most common thing you hear if you teach in a prison for a while, as, as I've stated that thing before, is, oh, I'm not guilty of what I'm in here for. I'm guilty of enough that I could be in here, but I'm not guilty of what they put me in here for. Um, and David is saying... I have walked in integrity. I've trusted in the Lord. But it does seem like it is a broad claim. I grant that. And I think it is a pretty broad claim in this context. But he asked God to examine him, to try him, to test him in verse 2. But I also want you to notice that in verse 3, he stresses a couple of characteristics of God. In verse 3... He mentions God's loving kindness, loving kindness and truth. Now, these are words that are mentioned together frequently in Psalms. They have been mentioned together in 25 verse 10. 
In the last psalm that we covered together, 25 verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. But they are used together frequently in the Psalms. First of all, let's go to a passage outside the Psalms. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. He abounds, He overflows in these characters. Loving kindness and truth. But they are often linked together. Here are passages from the Psalm. Psalm 6, 4. Psalm 40, verse 10. Psalm 57, verse 3. Psalm 61, verse 7. Psalm 86, and verse 5. 89 and verse 14. I believe these two phrases, both of these two words, loving kindness and truth or faithfulness, I believe they're both used seven times in Psalm 89. Psalm 115 verse 1 and Psalm 132 verse 8. So that shows you that this is a common word pair. Now, what is the significance? Your loving kindness is before my eyes and I have walked in your truth. Verses 1 through 3 are not simply a boast about how well the psalmist has done in living before God. Verses 1 through 3 are an affirmation that God's loving kindness and God's truth can keep us in the way of integrity and it can lead us to be consistent in our trust for God so that we will not slip and we will not fall and we will cling tenaciously to the path. God's nature helps us to walk in His path and He keeps these things constantly before His eyes. The word examine, the word try, the word test in verse 2, they refer to a probing search. But again, they are not words stated out of arrogance. They are words of submission, recognizing that we are accountable to God and we must bow our heart and surrender ourselves to Him. Uh, several of these words reappear, the words of verse 2, they reappear in Psalm 139, 23, and 24. The text says, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me, and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there's any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. So God searches us, tries us. And particularly that last word that is used there is used for talking about testing of metals. And you put the metal through the most intense fire, not to destroy it, but to purify it. 
to bring it out. And he says, examine me, O Lord, try me, and test my mind and my heart. What's the thought there between those two? Is it is it is it kind of the same thought expressed in two different ways, or are there two different emphases? It is it, a different word, but but they are very close together. Uh, let me give you a couple of times um, the various words are used. Um, I think the passage that we used 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 in. Um, Psalm 139 uses that word examine. Uses the word examine. The word, the second word, try, this would be the word that is used, for example, of uh, God testing Abraham. And it is a word that's used of uh, God testing Israel in the wilderness in Exodus 15, verse 25. It is the word used of God uh, testing Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 32 and verse 31. It is also a word to speak of man testing God in a negative way. For example, Exodus 17 and verse 2, uh, Israel tests God. So God may test Israel as it is in these first three instances, or Israel may test God. Examine me, try me, and test my mind and heart. Uh, this word was used in 7.9. These are from the Psalms. Uh, this was used in 11.4. It is used quite frequently in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 11 and verse 20. Uh, Jeremiah uh, 17 verse 10. 17 verse 10 and 20 verse 12. Now... The difference between those words uh, is the last that is frequently uh, used to describe um, the purifying of metals. It's the last of these words. But I think they're very close to the same concept, but piling them up is a way to say, examine me thoroughly. Now, you may have read this if you looked at some other commentaries but when we read the words mind and heart mind and heart what what do we think of when we read the words mind and heart test my mind and my heart we view the mind as being the intellect don't we and we view the heart as being the emotions uh, what the translation actually says, it says, test my kidneys. And uh, this is not a dialysis machine, uh, but uh, it tests my kidneys and uh, my, wait, I'm looking, my kidneys and my heart. Now, the kidney was viewed as a seat of the emotion in the ancient day. 
And the heart was viewed as the seat of the intellect where we would have mind. But I think what this is saying, kidney, it's, it's down there, you know. In all my years of, of dating or teaching college, I never had anybody say, man, that girl's got a good-looking kidney. Uh, never never heard that. Never heard it's It's down there deep. And I think this is a way, though, to talk about the most thorough... Uh, the thorough examination possible. Well, it's that which could be hidden, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and it's and it's deep in there, you know, too. You know, so, but I, but I think all the terms piled up emphasizes that he is willing to submit to the most thorough examination. Now, I will say, and I appreciated this, and Christy was reminded of this, and I'm not going to tell the name of the person who said this. But there was a person here recently that said they were reading the Psalms. And they said, I don't know if I could pray verses 1 and 2. They said they don't know if they could pray that. And I think what they were affirming is just this does demand much of us. And would we be willing to be examined that thoroughly by God? That's a thought. Any other thoughts right there? Okay, at the first of verse 4, he talks about sitting or not sitting with deceitful men. At the end of verse 5, he talks about not sitting with the wicked. Now, I'm going to read verses 4 and 5 again. But I want to ask you, does that remind you of anything? I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. So on the outer on the outskirts at the first and last of this section it talks about city. Now, does that remind you of any other psalm we've discussed David? Psalm one. Oh, psalm 1. He's, he's not he's not raising his hand to answer. He was he was signaling to me the answer. And uh, and some just blurted it out without waiting to be called upon. But Psalm 1, Psalm 1 talks about, blessed is the man who does not stand in the way, or excuse me, I have to get this right, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of of the scoffers. And in a certain way, the most intimate of those relationships is sitting with them. You're feeling comfortable enough. Now you're not just walking with them and you're not just standing with them. You have made yourself at home and you are sitting among them. And from the other perspective, if you were sitting with the wicked, it takes the most energy to break that because you have to get up and leave this counsel. But part of integrity is who we don't associate with. 
who we don't associate with. And he says, I do not sit with deceitful men. And I will not sit with the wicked. He does not make himself at home with people who are walking in rebellion to God. This is not the company that he craves. Now, we're going to talk about Psalm 26 at the end and how we would relate this to Jesus. And we want to think about all the ways in which we can relate the psalm to Him. But we can make efforts to try to help people who do not share our faith. But is that where we are most comfortable? Is that the place we most enjoy being? Are we more at home in a bar or the assembly? of local Christians. Where are we most comfortable? I will not sit with deceitful men. Now that word deceitful ties back to Psalm 24. In Psalm deceitful men, in 26 verse 4, Remember back in Psalm 24, verse 4, I have not lifted up my soul to falsehood or lifted up my soul to deceit. I have not lifted up my soul to falsehood or deceit. It's the same Hebrew word behind this. But here in this case, in 26 and verse 4, uh, I do not sit with deceitful men. I will not go with pretenders. I Hate. That's strong language here in verse 5. I hate the assembly of evildoers. One of the, the key things that I would want you to remember from Psalm 26. In Psalm 26 is this contrast in verse 5 between what he hates and what in verse 8 we will see an emphasis on what he loves. I hate, I hate the assembly of evildoers. And I will not sit with the wicked. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 17, I do not sit in the circle of merrymakers, nor do I exult. Because your hand was upon me, I sat alone. He doesn't sit with a circle of merrymakers. He sits alone because of his loyalty to God. Yes. First part of verse four, the American Standard says, "I do not sit with deceitful men." The New King James translates that, "I have not sat with idolatrous mortals." Okay, idolatrous mortals. Uh, if you look back, look back in twenty four four. In twenty four four, how does it translate the second part of the verse? Lifted up his soul to 
falsehood? Does it say falsehood there in the uh, New King James, or does it say idol. to idols? To an idol. To idols. Okay, they're consistent. Yeah, they're consistent in translating that. But but the difficulty with that translate it, that word is sometimes used of idolatry, but it can be used of deceit, which is different than idolatry. So I would say deceit would be the more general. Uh, use of that particular word, uh, but it can refer to idolatry. It can, but does the context demand that you translate it that way? Now, do I think that that was part of the essence of the wicked men in that day in Israel, that they worshipped other gods because they they did not have God's loving kindness and God's truth before their eyes, they go astray. And they make gods in their image and they are as immoral as the gods they make. But um, I think deceitful may be better, but certainly there there's a reason for the New King James. It may be the New International translates it the same way. I think it does, but we don't. Alas, we do not have perhaps a representative of that version tonight. Uh, okay, right. Go ahead. I do not sit with the deceitful. Okay. So see, there's the NIV. It's. It's inconsistent, you know. It's a, but in twenty four four it does have. I have not lifted up my soul to idols, doesn't it? In twenty four four. Twenty four four. The end of this verse. I've not lifted up my soul to idols. Is that what the NIV he does not trust in an idol. Okay, does not trust in an idol. See, that's the thing. The NIV sometimes it translates it idol in one context and deceitful in another. But um, but let's get back on the writer's innocence. He affirms his innocence. He affirms his love for God in six through eight, and he says in verse six, "I shall wash my hands in innocence." I will wash my hands in innocence. Let me remind you, there's a passage in Deuteronomy 21 in verses 1 through 9 that a man is found murdered in a field and it is not known who shed that blood. And what they did, if this happens in a field which really is not connected with any city, the elders of the cities go out and they measure and see which city is closest to the man. And the city that is closest, they go to a valley with running water and they kill a heifer as a, as a kind of sacrifice. And the elders of that city wash their hands and say, Our hands did not shed this blood and our eyes did not see it. And forgive, O Lord. Forgive, O Lord. So washing the hands was part of what was done in in that ceremony, Deuteronomy 21, 1-9, for cleansing. Now, Bob, did you have a comment? Or you okay? 
And I wash my hands in innocence. Now, back to Psalm 24, 4, which we referred to. Psalm 24, 3 and 4. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, who may stand in His holy place, verse 3. He who has clean hands, verse 4, and a pure heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. The priest, before he entered the tabernacle in Exodus 30, verses 17-21, through 21, washed his hands and his feet. And we find that taking place in Exodus 40, verses 30-32, through 32, before they entered. I will wash my hands in innocence. And you can remember another biblical character who washes his hands and says, I am innocent of this man's blood. He affirms his innocence. I have washed my hands in innocence. And I will go about your altar. He rejoices in God's altar in offering thanksgiving to God and speaking of the wonders of God. He loves this. And so he is innocent. He comes into God's house. And by the way, there are comparisons, as you've already seen, between this psalm and Psalm 24. There are comparisons between this psalm and Psalm 15. Who may abide in the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? And I may have quoted 24.3 again, but 15.1 is very similar to that. And 15 gave a, a list of things that's necessary to be able to enter God's house. I, I wash my hands in innocence. I will go about your altar, O Lord. I proclaim with a voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. He loves talking about God, pro- proclaiming His thanksgiving before God. And speaking of the wonders of God's deliverance. Now, this word wonders uh, that is used here in verse in verse seven is a word. It is a it is a word that is often used in the Psalms to talk about proclaiming the mighty acts. Of God. It was used in Psalm 9 1. It was used in Psalm 40, verse 5. It was used in um, Psalm 71 17 and 106 75 1. I've got a couple of other references. I think the word is only used. Uh, a relatively few amount of times in the book of Psalms, but it speaks of declaring God's wonders. Do we love to talk about the things of God? And he says in verse 8, I love the habitation of your house. You know, we might be surprised that Psalms doesn't use the word love as often as you might expect. You know, that would be a word that we would use if we were pouring out our devotion to God. But Psalms doesn't use it as frequently. And his, his hating the assembly of evildoers in verse 5 is in stark contrast to loving, loving the habitation of God's house. And he loves it not because of the architecture He loves it not because of what they're going to do after services. Because it is a place that God's glory dwells. 
I love the habitation of your house and the place that your glory dwells. The word habitation actually is a word that's used in the Psalms for refuge. I love the refuge of your house. And this place, I hope, is a refuge to you. In the world we are assaulted with evil and wickedness. In a world where we have things that are wrong, constantly promoted as right, and what is right is ridiculed and belittled. I hope this is a place of refuge. I love the habitation of your house. I love the refuge of your house. And it's the place where God's glory dwells. You remember that when the Lord appeared on Mount Sinai, the glory of the Lord was shining on the mountain in Exodus 24, 16 through 18. And when the tabernacle was completed in Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, the glory of the Lord came and filled the place and Moses was not able to minister. When the temple was completed in 1 Kings 8, 10 and 11, the priests were not able to minister because the glory of the Lord filled the house. The glory of the Lord dwelt in the house of the Lord. And because of this, He loved. He loved God's house. He loves it. He loves it because that's where God's glory is. Now, this idea of loving God's house, of longing for God's house, is going to appear in the next psalm. Look at Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. If he could just ask one thing of God, it is to dwell in God's house all his days, to see His beauty, to meditate upon Him. Now, that phrase, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, probably reminds you of another psalm as well. Psalm 23, 6. Goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In Psalm 84, Psalm 84, in verse, first of all, he begins this in verse 1. He says, how lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young, even her altar, even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. He even considers the bird who has made a nest in the house of God, he considers it him blessed. 
because he gets to dwell in the house of the Lord. Look at verse 10 of that psalm, Psalm 84, 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I had rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now I want to tell you people, if somebody's been a Christian for a bunch of years and they would rather have tickets to the Colts games or the professional sports teams games on Sunday than to be in services. That's a shame. That's a shame. If you are that, if you have that failure to grasp God's priority and what's important in life, that's sad. I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Any thoughts there or comments? What is his idea there in six when he says I'm going that I and I will go about your altar? Okay. And proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving, thanksgiving, and declare all your wonders. I, th- I hear altar, and I think priest, because I think of you know offering a sacrifice. Yes. And in those in those two phrases may be connected, even though one is in verse six and one is in verse seven. I'll go about your altar, and I'll proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving. Remember, there was. In the peace offerings, there was a specific type of peace offering called the Thanksgiving offering that you see in Leviticus 7, beginning about verse 12 through 15, I believe. And and I think that he may be stating that as he washes his hands to enter God's house, that here, as he goes to the altar, not that he is necessarily officiating at the altar, but he goes to the altar and they offer these sacrifices of thanksgiving. And he publicly declares all that God has done, which was often part of the sacrifice. As people brought the sacrifice, they talked about why they brought it and what the Lord had done for them. And to him, that brings great joy. To speak of all God's kindness to him, to make the sacrifice, to uh, to speak of God's work, um, gives him great joy. A couple of verses that talk about a sacrifice of thanksgiving in Leviticus are Leviticus seven twelve and Leviticus twenty two twenty nine. Um. Now, the book of Psalms also deals with this a few times. And I have down Psalm 50, verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Lord. Uh, Psalm 107 is a psalm of thanksgiving. Psalm 107. In 107 verse 22, let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his works and joyful 
singing. And then Psalm 116, verse 17, the text says, To you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and I call upon the name of the Lord. You notice in all of those cases... In Psalms, Psalm 50, 14, Psalm 116, verse 17, and Psalm 107, verse 22, that the offering of the sacrifice was accompanied with words of thanksgiving and the words of praise. So maybe those are the genesis of the Hebrews 13 passage. Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. It could be tied with that. I think that passage is specifically also, if you look at it, I think it's Hosea 14.2. It uses that phrase in the Old Testament, fruit of the lips. I believe it's Hosea 14.2. It's right around... If it's not, it's verses 1 or 3 of Hosea 14, I think. But they use that. But but all of that, the fact that it may use that language from there, yes, this concept is tied to that. Absolutely. And then you see the tie then, don't you, between 6 and 12. You know, that the end of all is that in the congregations, he's blessing the Lord. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yes, you so do. What's the end? What's the end of yeah. living this clean, dedicated, pure, holy life? Okay. It's to be able to offer praise to God. To offer praise to God, yes. And I I caught myself when you were saying something. There are a couple of points about verse 12 that I'm anxious to get to, and I almost preached them before we got there. Uh, but we will see them in just a second, uh, Lord willing. But... For the second time in the psalm, he kind of takes a detour as he is, he goes back between affirming his innocence and his desire to praise God with the description of the wicked people. And he describes the wicked again in verses 9 and 10, though if I have divided this correctly, at the end in verse 11, he's going to make an affirmation of his own loyalty. But but in verse 9, Do not take my soul away with sinners, nor let my nor my life with men of bloodshed, in whose hands is a wicked scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. So, uh, do not take away my... uh, Take me away... Take my soul away, and that can be translated life, it can be translated soul, it can be translated myself. Do not take uh, me away with sinners. Now, some have suggested, one writer I was reading gave some verses. Do you remember, you remember the places, what were they called? Uh, there were three on one side of the Jordan and three on the other side that if you killed somebody accidentally, you could go there and the elders of the city could hear your case. And if they determined you were innocent, you stayed in those cities. Those cities were what? Cities of refuge. Cities of refuge. You read about them in Numbers 35. You read about them in Joshua 20, among other places. Now, do you also remember that you could grab hold of the horns of the altar as a place of refuge? You see that mentioned in Exodus 21, verses 13 and 14. 
Now, how many times was that ever invoked in the rest of the Old Testament? Can you remember? Because I can think of two that it was invoked. Joab did, and who else did? Right in that time, Adonijah. Adonijah. Adonijah, the son of David, was the oldest living son of David. He tried to make a, a... effort to be king instead of Solomon. And after he finds out Solomon is king, he goes and he takes hold of the horns of the altar. And Solomon says, nothing will happen to you. No no hair of your head will perish if you show yourself to be innocent. Of course, he doesn't show himself to be innocent later. And he is executed along with Joab. But Joab did the same thing in 1 Kings 2, verse 28. When he says, don't snatch me away, don't take me away. Is that the idea? Like, drag that man away because he's guilty. He's not innocent. Or a person comes to the city of refuge and the elders of the city say, no, no, you are not innocent. You are guilty and you need to be handed over. That may be the idea. That may be too specific, okay? But it may be the idea. Don't take me away with sinners nor my life with men of bloodshed. And notice he talks in verse 10 of these wicked people and wicked men as ones in whose hands is a wicked scheme and whose right hand is full of bribes. Now, that strikes our attention because in verse 6, I wash my hands in innocence. The psalmist's hands were innocent and he tried diligently to keep them clean and he's not going to associate with those in whose hands is a wicked scheme whose right hand is full of bribes. He determines that just as he has in the past, in verse 1, walked in integrity, he's going to continue to walk in integrity in the future, in verse 11. As for me, I will walk in my integrity. And he says, redeem me and be gracious to me. Now, both of those ideas were stated in Psalm 25. Redeem me. Look at 25 verse 22. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. And here David says, redeem me. Redeem me and be gracious to me. Look at 25 verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. As for me, I walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. Now, this is a recognition too that the psalmist, even though he states, I've walked in integrity, I trusted in the Lord without wavering, he is conscious of his need for redemption and his need of mercy. Redeem me. Be gracious to me. He understands. His dependence upon the mercy of God. As Psalm 5, 7 says, But as for me, by the abundance of your loving kindness, I will enter your house. He realizes the same thing. He realizes the same thing. 
But does our commitment to walk in the Word of the Lord demand a certain direction of our lives? That we are seeking to honor Him. And he says in verse 12, My foot stands on a level place. Do your translations here have upright place? The word can be translated upright, but it's a word that's often used in talking about a plane. In, in, in I have Deuteronomy four forty three in several passages from Joshua thirteen, beginning with verse nine, that use this. But he's standing, you know, he's not on a precarious ledge right here. He is standing on solid ground. My feet are on a level place. He's talked about walking in verse one and verse eleven. His feet are in a good place. And it says, in the congregations, and it uses a plural, in the congregations, I shall bless the Lord. Don't some of your versions have great congregations? Or um, great assemblies? Okay. Now, this is one of the points I wanted to preach that John almost enticed me to preach too early. And uh, now this uses a plural term for our assembly. I told you one of the good ways to remember certain things about Psalms or any other book is to see contrast between hating the assembly of evildoers and loving the habitation of God's house. But both of these 26 verse 5 and verse 12 use the same root word, it's a plural in verse 12 for assembly or congregation. The assembly or the congregation. Verse 5 is an assembly he hated. Verse 5 was an assembly or congregation of evildoers. But verse 12, on the other hand, is the congregations of the Lord's people. It is not he is antisocial and just doesn't want to get together with anyone. No, he wants to be in a different congregation, in a different assembly, it may be, um, if we translate that consistently. But there is a contrast between the assembly in verse 5 of evildoers and the assembly uh, of those who are coming in God's name in verse 12. There is a difference. Again, which kind of an assembly do we feel most at home in? Do we feel most comfortable in? Are we ones that rejoice in the assembly of evildoers? the assembly of God's people. But another thing, he says in this congregation he will bless God and he will praise God. He wants he wants God to vindicate him in verse 1. But one of the reasons he wants to do this is so that he may tell the story to others in the congregation. Now what benefit could that have? It could have the benefit of others who are going through this problem, who are going through this difficulty, 
they may think there's hope. God delivered them. He can deliver me. I want you to understand what I'm saying and the way I'm saying it. Uh, and, and I recognize my terminology could be questioned here. Okay, I'm not, I'm not going to die on this hill with my terminology. But could there be a place for a little more testifying in our assembly? And what I mean by that is simply when a person has been sick and on the deathbed to tell the story how God delivered them. Or a story of how they have been trapped in sin and God set them free. Could there be a place for that? We want that always to be based on Scripture and what God has said. And a lot of times you hear those in the world and they have nothing to do with Scripture. And I'm not justifying that. But I am saying that we can praise God in the midst of the assembly. We may do it with the songs that we all sing together. And we might do it by an individual story of how God helped us in a specific situation. But in a certain way, this psalm, one writer said, it calls us to the decision of Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. Choose you this day who you will serve. Are we wanting to be in the assembly of evildoers or in this great assembly of verse 12? Are we wanting to sit with deceitful men or do we long for the presence among God's people? Those are things that it calls us to. What did I miss on Psalm 26 that you have a question or thought about? Anything? Okay, let's talk about how Jesus fulfills that psalm. When you think of the life of Christ and you and you read these words, how does how do these words connect with Christ? David was very referred to, you know, washing of hands and how Pilate okay. washed his hands. Although he was far from innocent. Yes, yes, he was not innocent. But the one that he declared himself to be. But isn't it fascinating that the one that he spoke of was absolutely right. innocent? And, and and so, really, in a certain sense, what David is saying is is to the overall purpose. Because here, the writer is affirming his innocence. In some of these passages, he uses that term specifically in um, verse 6. But he affirms his innocence. And Jesus was absolutely innocent, tempted in all points like as we are, yet we he without sin, in Hebrews 4.15, a passage that we use Sunday. Jesus could challenge the crowds, which of you convicts me? Which of you convicts me 
of sin. But but you know what what David said there is fascinating too. The very ritual of washing hands, which was to show the innocence of the one who washed their hands. Um, Pilate engages in in Matthew 27 verse 24 Pilate is still guilty but the one about whom the one that he is sentencing to death is innocent as Pilate himself has said in Luke 23 verse 4 verses 14 and 15 and verse 22 Okay, very good. Very good. What else do you see here that you think of? I thought of um, in verse 3, the loving kindness and truth, John 1, 17, um, that the law was given through Moses, but this grace and truth are realized in Jesus Christ. Yes, and I do believe in the Hebrew translation, that of the New Testament in John 1.17 that it uses these same two Hebrew words. I do believe that is the case. So God's loving kindness and truth which are lumped together in 26.3 God's loving kindness and truth merge to the greatest possible extent in the life of Christ life of Christ and even this language I love the habitation of your house the place where your glory dwells remember we beheld his glory as the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The first part of that verse says, He dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And by the way, that word dwells in verse uh, 8. Sometimes it's just translated tabernacle. Uh, It's tabernacle as translated uh, as a noun. Tabernacle here as a verb. Dwells. But um, can you think of any way, and I think you'll understand what I mean here, that we might see a slight, it's not, it's, not as, it's not as strong as it may look at first, but there's a slight contrast with Jesus. You, you hinted at it. I okay, think. what was it? Well, David seems to make a clear delineation of his not having anything to do with evil man and yet Jesus was accused of yeah. uh, eating with and being yeah. a friend of sinners yes and and to an, to an extent there is some truth to, yes. to not to the charge but to his association yes you know in here in this psalm there's a lot of emphasis on not associating with the sinful people and and obviously it is not associating with them in their sin which Jesus did not do so there's a point of comparison of this in Psalm 26 but also you know Jesus why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners and Jesus said it's not those 
who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call the sinners to repentance. And so Jesus, Jesus would not disavow any of the words of Psalm 26, but Jesus does involve himself with sinners in an effort to win them. That is both necessary for us and at the same time we have to recognize that may be more dangerous for us than it was for him for we're not as holy as he is. Right, because the the leper and the, the sick could touch him and he's not made leprous or unclean but it goes the other way. Yes, it does. So we have to realize that that difference between ourself and Christ. There's some things that are going to be different for Christ because He is unique. That is not to say we shouldn't try to find ways to reach out to others. But um, there, there is the danger in involvement. And I don't want to say too much some examples are coming to mind but I I know people that have gotten themselves involved in a sincere effort to help others who ended up getting trapped in what they were trying to rescue somebody else from but do you remember another incident John 2 Jesus cleanses the temple and they are asking him where do you have authority to cleanse this temple? And he said, destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up. And the Bible says, after his resurrection, the disciples remembered a passage. What, what was the passage they remembered? Do you remember what it said? Zeal for your house consumes it. Zeal for your house consumes it. It's a quote from Psalm 69. But that statement, did you think Jesus could utter the words of this passage where in John this is John 2 really 19 through 22 is the part of the conversation that we emphasize that Jesus would say I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells do we love the habitation of God's house Thank you for coming with us and joining with us in this study. Yes, go ahead. Um, with verse 7, with declaring all your wonders, and you were talking about it being the mighty acts of God. I that how many times that's referred to in Acts. With the things that they were doing were the mighty acts of God that yeah. even that Jesus was doing. Mm-hmm. That he had done. Like yes. Yeah, signs, yeah. miracles, wonders. Is that the same? I would have. I, I did. I didn't look up the word in the Septuagint. Have to do that. Ask the teacher about that later. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's interesting, and this sort of heads in another direction. I think, but it is interesting to me that the apostles were comfortable being around Jesus, not always. That this, these sinners, these uh, uh, people were comfortable. Jesus presented himself to them in a way that they were comfortable to come to him. They were, they were both attracted to his holiness 
in a certain sense, terrified by it. As Peter said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. And yet they kept following him. And to me, that is the saving point about those apostles. And you look particularly in the Gospel of Mark as I've been going through it on Sunday night and uh, and Ella's in that class. And the disciples, they just, if they're ever quoted, they're saying something they shouldn't have said or doing something that they shouldn't have done. But they don't quit following Him. They don't quit following Him. And that is fascinating. And uh, maybe that is what it's all about is in spite of our failures and sins we keep turning to him for mercy and forgiveness and we don't give up on him now um, we do have a I, I, I think I detect a song that we have been left with in Psalm 26 if someone wants to lead us in that it's to the tune I'm not ashamed to own my Lord which is a tune I know, but I don't think I'm going to venture it. But, but before we do... Um...